All right. Welcome, everyone. That song means yep. it's time for your Berkshire Hathaway Wednesday podcast. I'm Dale Coolis, subbing in for John Roberts today on this Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. And you heard him across from me. Joining me shortly will be the one, the only, John Brodine, to borrow a phrase from John Roberts. Yep. And he'll be with us shortly, right after this. It can feel a lot like this. But you should expect more when you're buying or selling a home. You should feel taken care of by someone who can turn jitters into ah. Someone with the tools and knowledge to help you find the one or sell yours. We'll take it. Someone who can make real estate feel less like that and more like this. That's Home Services. Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. All right, we are back here on the Berkshire Hathaway Wednesday podcast, and I have him right across from me. Please welcome Mr. John Brodeen. Boom. How, I got to give you the crowd clap. There we go. Yeah, John always does that. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm multitasking a little bit today. The crazy the crazy ice storms made it. I'm just kind of rocking solo here in yep. the studio. How goes it today? How was your Christmas? Good. It was awesome. Yeah, that's impressive doing the production stuff and the hosting at the same time. You're I, I could never pull that off. So, <laughs> uh, we, we, hey, I like to wear a lot of hats. What can yep, I say? Yep, that's awesome. Very impressive. <laughs> good, good holidays. Good. Yeah, good. yeah. It we're talking a little bit. I think we're both kind of celebrating like multiple sides of the family there. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, on Christmas Eve, went over to my parents' place. Carolyn, Dylan, we brought my dog Norman over there. So it was a full house. Uh, my sister, her fiance. And then on uh, on Monday, Christmas Day, went over to Carolyn's parents' place in the morning, hung out there. It was really nice because her brother, uh, Ben, is in town for the holidays. So got to hang out with him, uh, her parents. Then um, So we did gifts in the morning, hung out there all day. And then for, uh, for dinner, my parents came over there as well. So we got everybody together. So it was a big couple of days. It was nice, really Non-stop. nice. Lots of leftovers. I, don't know, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I had a ton. Yeah, yeah. We're eating good. We're, we've been eating good these last couple of days. So, God. Gosh, that sounds so good. Gotta love the holidays. And yeah. we also gotta love what you got in store for us today. Uh, yeah. 10 common home buying myths. Yeah, yeah. So these are things I run into all the time. Uh, misconceptions, things that can kind of trip buyers up. So the first one, and I know I've touched on this on the show a million times, but people still think that you need to put 20% down at a minimum to buy a house. And first time home buyers are thinking, how in the world am I going to put 20% down. I'm lucky if I even have, you know, 20% in all of my savings or something if they're young and, you know, trying to buy their first home. So you can actually put 0% down if you qualify for a VA loan or if you qualify, if you can use a USDA loan. USDA loan is going to be in rural areas. Um, East Grand Forks does qualify for the USDA loan. Grand Forks does not. Um, Those are both 0% down options. Then your next lowest down payment is going to be an insured conventional. Usually they'll start at 3% down. Um, FHA is going to start at 3.5% down. FHA is a little more lenient on your debt-to-income ratios um, and credit scores. And uh, they're just going to have some requirements that the property has to be in a certain condition. So if you're trying to buy a pretty move-in ready home that's been nicely maintained and updated and everything, um, FHA is a great option. When rates are really, really low, FHA is a little less popular because to get rid of your private mortgage insurance, you do have to refinance out of your FHA loan um, into a new loan to get uh, to get rid of your mortgage insurance. Otherwise, it's going to stay on for the life of the loan. Um, an insured conventional, but that's fine in today's 
environment because chances are you're going to be refinancing when rates come down anyway. Um, when rates are super low, that's something you need to be aware of, though. Then with an insured conventional loan, you can do 3% or 5% down at a minimum. Now, whenever you're putting anything less than 20% down, you're going to have private mortgage insurance. The only exception to that is VA, where you have a funding fee instead of private mortgage insurance, kind of accomplishes the same thing. Uh, private mortgage insurance uh, is required until you hit 20 some per- like 20% equity. Um, so usually if somebody uses a 30-year conventional loan, that private mortgage insurance will fall off after about eight years. Um, unless the market goes crazy and goes up in value big time, then it could come off earlier. You could request it come off earlier. Or if you make some like crazy renovation to the place and you boost the value up by like, you know, 50 grand or something like that. Private mortgage insurance, that's something you see more and more common more recent years, or maybe during the crazy 2008 year. Was that, um, was that a big, big time thing back then? You know what? I wasn't selling real estate back then. I don't know when that became a thing. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I'd have to look into that. Um, but as long as I've been selling real estate since 2014, it's been pretty common because the vast majority of first-time homebuyers put less than 20% down. So um, yeah, private mortgage insurance is not something to be afraid of. If if you were to measure what's, what's uh, you know, it's good to have some savings built up. You don't want to drain your whole entire bank account to buy a house. So I would encourage people to have some money saved up. Don't just save up the bare minimum, get into a house and then be broke because um, you do want to have some cushion there. Um, but if you look at, uh, you know, if you saved up an entire if you saved up 20% and then you saved up some more to have a cushion after you buy your house, the number of years that would take uh, is years that you're going to continue to be renting. As long as home buying is the right option for you based on your situation, it's better to buy a home earlier, put less down, use private mortgage insurance, start letting that home build in value, start building equity through making your payments and getting that loan pay down Um and then eventually you get rid of that private mortgage insurance once you hit that equity, uh, once you hit the 20% equity. So that's what I would suggest. I mean, if somebody's super conservative, you still can save up 20% and uh, miss that private mortgage insurance. But um, most most people have it, especially on their first home. I think that's great. Just oh, yeah. I always hear the cliche, a rainy day fund. And yep. that sounds like a great scenario for just that. Yeah, yeah. How much of a rainy day fund you have is going to depend on how conservative you are with your finances. But I've heard a lot of experts say it's not a bad idea to save up 20%. Just don't use the entire 20%. Because then that shows you can save some money. You've got a cushion. You're comfortable. You're not going to be bankrupted by it when your furnace goes out. But So number two, the this is super common. So a lot of people think the first step in the home buying process is just to start looking on Zillow and find a home that you'd like to buy. That's not true at all. The first step in the home buying process, we'll talk about this in, a, in my podcast later this week too, but the first step the first step in your home buying process, you got a few things you're going to do, but let's say you're ready to go. Um, you need to get pre-approved, figure out what your budget's going to be, get your kind of team in place, which is your two most kind of important members of your team are going to be your real estate agent and your mortgage lender. So you want to get your team in place. You want to get your pre-approval ready to go. Make sure you've got your budget nailed down because the last thing you want to do is do what a lot of people do and just start shopping for homes before you have any idea what you can afford and what you're qualified for. And you're seeing basically, you know, to find the type of home that you've, uh, that after looking, you know, the ones that check all your boxes and now you've got this expectation and maybe you think that you're going to be buying a $350,000 home and then you're really only pre-qualified for a $290,000 home. It's going to be a huge disappointment and it's going to make all those $290,000 homes feel like 
they're not good enough because you've been used to looking at $350,000 homes. And so that's a letdown that you don't want to put yourself through. Figure out your budget, figure out what you can do ahead of time. If you really are set on, I'm not going to buy a house until I can get a $350,000 house, then you need to talk to your lender. And it's better to be working on this earlier than later. What do I need to change about my financial situation to be able to qualify for that $350,000 house? Maybe it's, I just need to get my car paid off and that's going to free up enough of my debt to income ratio so that I can qualify for a $350,000 house. So get in touch with your lender early. Um, if you need to make some tweaks to your situation in order to qualify for that type of home you like, then it gives you time to do it instead of waiting to the last minute and then wasting all that time, essentially. I, I always like how in the past on ba- past episodes of Berkshire Hathaway podcast, mm-hmm. uh, you, you guys have brought on lenders as guests. And yeah. I know you guys are, have great resources to hook up uh, your clients with the, the right lender to get them on that budget plan. 100%. And I would strongly suggest, you know, tap into your realtors, uh, you know, relationships and connections that they have get in touch with a great local lender. I would strongly advise that over going with some online lender. Cause a lot of times when you go with an online lender, you get bounced around to like five different people. Nobody's very fast at getting back to you and answering your questions. If we do run into issues with the transaction, you need somebody who's really on the ball and the local lenders have a lot to lose because they live and die off their local reputation and their reputation amongst the real estate community. A national lender might never end up doing a loan again in Grand Forks, North Dakota. They don't care what people in Grand Forks, North Dakota think about them in a lot of cases. So they're not that motivated to answer the phone and respond to that email really fast and like push stuff through if we're up against a tight deadline. So yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would suggest to the home buyers out there. Local lender all the way. Thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, number three, uh, another common myth, the only expense when buying a home is the down payment. And we're talking about, you know, at closing, you only need to write a check for that down payment. If you're putting 5% down, that's what you write a check for at closing, then the house is yours. That's not true. You're going to have closing costs. Closing costs are going to be your upfront uh, homeowner's insurance, your up front, uh, your property taxes that you're setting aside for the upcoming year. Um, you're going to have your lender origination fee. That's how the mortgage lender who does all that work for you gets compensated for their time. Um, you're going to have, uh, your, your portion of the title fees, which is a little bit, that's not a huge amount, but it's some, so somebody should budget for probably about 2% of their total loan amount in closing costs, two to 3%, usually closer to two, um, on top of their down payment. So if they're planning to put 5% down, they should expect to probably write a check for, you know, seven to 8% of that, uh, of that loan amount. So that brought back memories of uh, when I bought a vehicle, I got a car loan and yep. I forgot to budget in the title taxes indeed. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah. thankfully to what you mentioned earlier, rainy day fund for that. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want that to come out of nowhere. So that's another reason that having a realtor on your team from the very beginning so you know what to expect, it'll help things be a little less stressful. So, um, okay, number four, uh, this might sound weird coming from a real estate agent whose job is to sell homes, but uh, buying a home is not always the better financial choice compared to renting. It's really going to depend on your situation. There are many different situations where it's better financially for you to rent rather than own a home. I don't make any money off people renting homes and I only make money off people buying homes, but there have been times where I've directed clients. I'm like, dude, you know, this is this is really doesn't make that much sense for you to buy right now. You're kind of hoping to hit a home run here and you need a lot of things to just go perfectly in order for this to work out. Biggest thing is how long you're going to live in it. If you're only going to be in, if you know you're going to be leaving Grand Forks in two years, 
I would probably urge somebody to rent because it's so much lower risk. Sure, you could hit a home run, the market could do really well, and you could make a bunch of money. But what's more likely is the market just continues going at its kind of usual pace, and you end up, you know, not gaining much equity because those first couple of years of your mortgage payments are mostly principal or mostly interest and very little principal. That starts to build up as you go through the loan, a higher percentage of principal compared to interest in those later years of your loan. Um, also, two years, even if the market does really well, that's not giving it that much time to go up in value. And then when you sell, it's it's expensive to sell. You have to pay, um, you know, there's there's a lot more expenses with selling that people don't realize. If your house is worth 220 you don't just get a check for 220 You know, you have your real estate commissions, which is a, one of the biggest costs of selling a home. Um, you have, you know, title fees again. You've got prorated taxes. So you want to make sure that it winds up being a wise financial decision. In some cases, based on some people's scenarios, it's better to rent. And also, if you're not financially responsible enough to own a home, if you don't have much savings at all, and you can't, uh, you're not going to be able to handle, you know, needing a new roof or needing a new AC or needing a new furnace. Um, it's better to rent because all that stuff's handled for you. And then you can just worry about getting your financial situation, uh, you know, in order before you take that leap. So kind of like yeah. the early, early planning stages and kind of just bring mm-hmm. back a perfect analogy just for, uh, you know, baseball team players working their way up the minor league ranks, get yeah. those training years in. Yeah. Yeah. Learn to, you know, rent, you don't have to worry about big expenses if the roof goes out it's your landlord's problem um get your you know use that opportunity to save up some money uh get your financial financial situation stable uh, before looking to buy a home so um here's another one that i get all the time number five inspection and appraisal people use those words interchangeably that sometimes people think they're the same thing um i'll explain the differences between the two so appraisal is all uh, is whenever you're getting a mortgage, it's almost always going to be subject to appraisal. This is something that the lender is going to require. The lender doesn't want to borrow you money to be able to buy a house. You know, you're you've agreed to pay for pay three hundred grand for this house, but it turns out it's only worth two seventy five. The lender doesn't want to be borrowing you three hundred thousand to buy a two hundred seventy five thousand dollar home. They need to make sure it's worth what you've agreed to pay for it. So the primary goal of the appraisal is to make sure that the house is actually worth what you're agreeing to pay for it or more. Um, then this is what really throws people off. When you've got some government loans like USDA, FHA, and VA, they also have specific condition requirements. The house has to be in a certain condition in order for them to finance it. They're not going to allow anything that's kind of like a safety hazard. They consider like chipped and peeling paint a safety hazard because there's potentially lead paint in one of those layers. They don't want kids eating it and getting sick and a whole bunch of other things like that. So for those certain loan types, the appraisal also is kind of like an inspection where they're making sure it meets the condition requirements. And this aspect of it, if you're using one of those type of loans, the appraisal is a pass or fail. So not only are they checking out the value, but they're also making sure it passes the condition requirements. If it fails the condition requirements, then you have to come up with a plan on how you're going to get those things fixed, have the appraiser come back out, see that they're fixed, and then be able to close on the house. So that's where a lot of confusion happens. On, and the appraiser who does the appraisal on your property is completely randomly assigned. So the bank doesn't have control over really who does it. They put it into a, a portal, and whoever picks up the job picks it up. So there's not any collusion between the banks and the appraisers. There's not any collusion between sellers and the appraisers, buyers and the appraisers, real estate agents and the appraisers. It's all randomly assigned. You as the buyer don't have any control over who gets it, who does, it, who, who does the job. Um, 
Then on the other hand, with an inspection, home inspection, it's going to be done much earlier in the process. It's kind of the first thing that gets done um, once you agree to, once you sign a purchase agreement and you've now gotten your offer accepted. The first, one of the first things you're going to do is set up the home inspection. That's completely optional for you as a buyer, whether you have a home inspection contingency or not. Um, it's completely up to you who you hire to do the home inspection. It's not like a pass or fail inspection. It's not tied to your financing at all. So if the if issues come up in that inspection, it's not going to prevent you from still getting a loan on the house and buying it. It's just for your knowledge. Make sure that there's nothing in there that you didn't see coming or some massive expenses. Um, don't want to get caught with a surprise charge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to find out that the house is going to collapse or that your your roof is leaking really bad in the attic and you've got a bunch of mold or something. Hey, you need a new foundation. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in extreme cases, that's where the buyer can use that inspection contingency based on what they found to back out of the deal and just keep shopping, find something else. Uh, what's more common is the buyer and seller, maybe they find a few little issues and uh, this you ask the seller and they agree to fix a couple of them before closing and you move forward. Um, but like I said, it's not required. It's optional. You pick the appraiser. Um, you kind of decide yourself what you're going to do about it. It's not tied to your loan at all. So I hope that clears up some confusion because that's a really confusing topic. for. And, and I imagine guys. if your clients get mixed up a little bit, you're, you're, you guys always have your phone on ready yep. for their questions. Yep, 100%. 100%. And even when we first meet, we're going to go through all this so they know what to expect and kind of learn some of the lingo, and then I'm helping them with it the whole way. So, uh, so number six, this is uh, common, especially with people who are thinking about buying fixer-uppers. Um, they think that they are going to get all of the money back that they spend on pretty much any housing pro- on any house improvement pro- uh, project. Okay, so they think that if they put fifty grand into the most elaborate, nice deck that they could possibly build, that their house is now worth fifty grand more, and when they sell it, they're going to get fifty grand more for it. The truth is, the majority of house projects um, have they don't have a one to one return. So majority of house projects, maybe you spend, um, for every dollar spent, you might get 80 cents back. There are a few projects that do yield a positive return where maybe you spend a dollar and you get a dollar and 10 cents back or something like that. Usually those are the cheaper cosmetic things. The more uh, major, uh, expensive, um, kind of more necessary things don't yield as good of a return. Um, like a new roof, uh, new windows, new siding, those things are very expensive and it's hard to recoup your money from it. doesn't mean it's a bad idea to do it because it preserves the life of your home. You're going to defer, you know, you're going to get rid of a bunch of maintenance issues and all this kind of stuff, but you're not going to expect to put, you, you put 30 grand worth of new siding on your house. Your house doesn't instantly go up by 30 grand. It may have gone up by 20 grand. So, um, maybe a little bit of a loss in the long run, but probably worth it to get that big sale in the end. Yeah. Worth it. Worth it in the aspect that when you're living in that house, now you don't have to worry about water getting into your, you had old, you know, if your siding was old and crappy and water could get into it or pests could get into your house, you know, you're going to make up for it with the maintenance headache and whoever buys it is going to appreciate the new siding. It's going to be a selling point. It's going to get you more money than had you never done it. You just aren't going to recoup hundred percent of that cost back. So, um, that's important for people to consider, especially when they're thinking of doing some pretty massive projects. Um, you also need to consider what your neighborhood is going to support because if you already bought one of the most expensive houses in the neighborhood um, and then you're thinking of doing some massive renovation to it, 
you got to see like, okay, so the highest sale in this neighborhood is only 200,000. You bought yours for 190 and you're thinking about putting a hundred into it. It's going to make it even worse of an investment if your neighborhood doesn't support it rather than if you have, um, if you bought a $200,000 house, but the majority of the homes in the neighborhood are 350,000, then maybe you could justify putting some more money into that home, making it nicer because the neighborhood does support it. Um, you know, so yeah, that's, that's benefit the neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Get it. If you're able to get it up to par with the rest of the neighborhood, you just don't want yours to stand out where it's like a million times nicer than every other home within a quarter mile radius, you know? Absolutely. Um, okay. So, uh, number seven, uh, if you're buying a home with cash, you don't need any sort of pre-approval letter. So they're right that you don't need a pre-approval letter, but what you need instead is a proof of funds letter. A proof of funds letter is not a screenshot of your banking app. It's not a, uh, a just a printout of your bank statement. You don't need to show how much money is in your account. You're going to go to the bank and you're going to ask the bank manager to write you a proof of funds letter stating that I, John Brodine, have enough assets to purchase the property at this address. Um, and they'll sign off on it. It'll be on the bank's letterhead. It's not going to say how many, how many dollars are in my bank account. You don't need to disclose that information. You just need something from the bank stating that you do have enough money to make the purchase. Sounds like almost like getting a, a notary statement, uh, yeah. for, for, but making it official from the bank. Yep, yep, exactly. So this is something that surprisingly causes a lot of confusion. Um, and you'd think cash home buyers are pretty savvy and they've been, you know, around the block and they know how to do this stuff, but you'd be surprised. And even a lot of bank tellers don't even know what this is. So people go into the bank and I'll send a client to the bank and say, Hey, get a proof of funds letter. And then they'll come back with a printed out statement. I'm like, no, go in and ask her a manager, say you need a proof of funds letter on the bank's letterhead, just stating you have enough money to purchase this property and have them sign off on it. And that's all you need to do. That's going to be in place of a pre-approval, uh, in place of a pre-approval letter when you're buying a home with cash. So number eight, your mortgage payment is the only expense as a homeowner. And now we're not talking about repairs and maintenance and stuff like this. We're just talking about like your monthly, what what your kind of fixed expenses are. Um, you're going to have your mortgage payment, which is made up of your principal and interest. If you buy a home with less than 20% down, you're likely going to have private mortgage insurance as well. And then you're also going to have your taxes and insurance that you typically pay monthly when you have a mortgage. So uh, it's important when you're looking at what your payment's going to be. I remember on Zillow, at least how it used to be, is they would only show you what your payment would be, but they'd only show the principal and interest. Um, so you need to know the taxes and insurance because you might look and be like, oh, I can buy that nice house and my payment's only 1900 bucks a month. Yeah, but the taxes and insurance are another $700 a month or whatever. You know, It all adds up. Yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. So be realistic. Make sure you factor that in. Um, number nine is cheaper to buy a fixer-upper and renovate it. We were just talking about this, how the majority of... Uh, you know, house projects don't yield a positive return. So uh, buying a fixer-upper and fixing it up isn't always cheaper than buying a house that's already fixed up. When you're buying a fixer-upper and fixing it up, you're going to have a lot of expenses out of pocket. So you're going to need to make your down payment and closing costs to purchase the home. And then you're going to you're not going to be typically getting loans for the other stuff. So you're going to need to pay for that other stuff in cash. So if a house if you're buying a house for two hundred thousand, and so your down payment is uh, ten grand, you've got another um, six grand in closing costs, so you got sixteen grand out of pocket, and you're going to do a fifty thousand dollar renovation. You're you're putting like six. You need sixty six grand in, in liquid cash that you're going to be spending on this thing. Whereas if you would have bought a two hundred fifty thousand dollar home, what is that? You're going to need like. Uh, 
I don't know, $19,000 in cash to, to purchase it. So get that down payment in. Yeah. So you do need to have a lot more liquid funds to be able to do the fixer upper out. Um, you know, you and, don't and those, to, those could just pile up before you know it. Yeah. Yeah, they could. And so if you're going to go that route, I would suggest a, a good option is finding something in a great neighborhood that's cosmetically ugly and outdated where you're not going to be needing to do all those really expensive things, but then you are going to be able to do those cheaper things like we talked about earlier that do have the best payoff, like car, you know, flooring, paint, um, you know, new garage door, new front door, spruce it up, make it look much nicer, but it's not, not like, you know, new siding, new roof, new windows, all these really expensive things. So, yeah. Um, okay. And last one on the list, having multiple lenders pull your credit will hurt your credit score. Um, when they factor in your credit score, if you if you apply for a mortgage with a few different lenders within a two week period, they know that you're shopping for a mortgage, so they don't think you're just you know haphazardly going out there and trying to pick up as much loans and debt as possible. They know what you're doing, so if you apply with multiple lenders and check their interest rates that they can offer you, um, just make sure you do it within a two week period, and your credit score isn't going to take a bigger hit than it would if you just applied with one lender. So. There you go. The yeah. 10 common home buying myths. Yeah. Myths busted now. Oh, gosh. Yeah. John, this flew by before I knew it. So if anyone's wondering, what's the best way people can reach out and contact you? Yeah. Uh, 701-213-5428 is my cell phone number. Um, and if you want to check me out on social media, uh, John Brody and Realtor on pretty much any platform, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, uh, put out content for buyers and sellers all the time on there. So. All right, John, thank you so much. We'll be back on Friday with more home buying goodness. Sounds awesome. All right. Well, that wraps up your Wednesday edition of the Berkshire Hathaway podcast. Many thanks again to John Brodine for joining me today. And many thanks for all you for tuning in. We'll be back with the Berkshire Hathaway podcast Friday morning at 10 o'clock. Until then, stay safe out there in these crazy icy conditions. We'll see you Friday, everyone.